You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everyone, and welcome this weekend, this Sunday. Uh, our scripture reading today is going to be from James chapter 3 and chapter 4. You can follow along on the screen. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And that is the reading of God's word. And hi, everybody, again, and welcome to our series in the book of James we're in the middle of called We Were Made for This. We're taking a look at what someone named James, the, the brother of Jesus and the writer of this little letter, had to say about what the Christian life ought to look like. And what James does throughout the book is he sort of puts one eye on the, on the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, one eye on his resurrected brother and Lord Jesus Christ, and, and it shows us week by week chapter by chapter, what we were made for. And today we're going to see James shows us, he insists that we were made for unity. We were made for unity. And more specifically, James is going to show us that we were made for, that we were created for. We live best when we're inside two kinds of impossible unity, only made possible by a third. Today we're going to see that we were made for, number one, a kind of personal unity that brings wholeness. Number two, a corporate unity that brings healing because of, number three, a divine unity that holds the universe. Personal unity, corporate unity, divine unity, all here from James into three and beginning of four. Here we go. Let's go. Number one, and take a look at the kind, a kind of personal unity that brings wholeness. We're going to start in chapter four, verse one, where James introduces, he brings up an interesting kind of tension. You can see it in the two questions he asks here. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So right here, James, in these two questions, he's holding up the tension, we're going to see, between the individual and the community. Because first, when he asks, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, that's a plural you. That's aimed at the whole church. He's saying there's fighting going on among y'all in the church. I know, crazy to think about, right? There's a kind of public fighting. We'll come back to that. But there's also personal private solo kind of fighting as in you are fighting yourself and you can see that from the second question he asks when he says well don't those 
public fights come from your desires that battle within you. That's singular in the Greek, the individual he's pointing out. Your translations say it's because of what's happening in your own members, the members of the church. So here, here now is Morgan's best translation at capturing the tension. James is saying there's a struggle up top because there's a struggle down below. A struggle up top because there's a struggle down below. Why is James articulating this tension? Here's why. The answer is, it's because the main source of the Hebrew scriptures that James channels throughout the book is what's called Hebrew wisdom literature. Stuff like uh, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Job. He references all of them along the way. And it says that life works best, not just when you live according to the rules, though that's important, but when you live according to reality. And the reality is, on the one hand, on the one hand, on one side of the coin, one side of reality, one truth in life is that individuals are responsible to make the world a better place through their own choices, behaviors, actions. But many times, the reality is, oftentimes they don't. Individuals can make the world not a better place, but a worse place through what James goes on to call, this is a theme throughout the book, through what he calls our desires, our desires. Again, it's the word epithumia. It simply means master desire, over desire, highest desire. He's saying your misordered first love is what causes the breakdown of the individual, the breakdown and the loss of personal wholeness and oneness. And he goes on to give you a couple of examples. He says, here's what that looks like. Here's what personal breakdown looks like. You desire as an individual, but you don't have it. So you kill, you covet, but you can't get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. All right. He says, all right, listen, you want something in life. Maybe it's like a new career. Maybe it's a promotion. Maybe it's to be heard. Maybe it's to be seen. A new house, a new car, a new spouse. You desire it. Once more to quote those great cultural prophets, the Spice Girls, you don't just want it. You like really, really want it, but you don't get it. He says, so you kill. You're saying, man, were there people like murdering each other in this church, Morgan? I've heard of some rough churches, but this one takes the cake. Probably not. What's more likely, most likely, is that James is simply applying Jesus' teaching that if you hate someone, it's like you murder them. Think about it. When someone stands in the way of what you want, someone wants, what do, we, what do we do when we really, really want it? Sometimes, sometimes we assassinate them on social media. Sometimes we attack someone, a group of people. Maybe we slice up their reputation. Maybe we gossip against them to bring them down. And of course, we can always justify all of it, but it always comes because we want something. We don't get it. And this is tough. And you can see this, for example, uh, in the illustration of someone named Lance Armstrong. You may know the name. He's a famous American cyclist. He, he won like a whole bucket full of Tour de France cycling titles. and He did it for years, but he cheated. Everyone around him knew he was cheating, knew he was doping, using illegal drugs, knew he was lying about it. And when they tried to hold him accountable, what did he do? He threatened lawsuits. He drug his friend's reputation through the mud. He accused everyone else of being a fake and a phony and a liar. He literally spent countless thousands of dollars, years defending and lying about his epithumia 
his master desire, which was his reputation to be known as someone, perhaps the greatest. Now, thankfully, he's admitted to this now. I'm sure he's changed and grown, but at what cost? At what cost to him and to others? But James would have said to him, hey, hey, Lance, Lance, it's okay, brother. What you want down deep to be known as someone, God could have given that to you. Look at what James says. He says, you don't have because you don't ask God. Now, you may be saying, Morgan, like, I tried that. It didn't work. Oh, but James would say, that's because when you asked, you didn't get what you asked for because you were still thinking of God more like a cosmic genie, a cosmic lantern with like Will Smith popping out all covered in blue paint to give you three wishes so you could become the fresh prince of Agrabah. See, what I did right there, Gen X, Y, Z, all mashed up together. I'll be here all week. But no, James goes on to say, listen, when you ask, you didn't get it. You don't receive because you asked with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. He's saying God's not a piggy bank of blessing you just tap into, that you get stuff so you can continue your dysfunctional cycle of hurting yourself and others. Like what kind of bad parent would give their child that? See, there's a problem within each of us. James is forcing us to see which is we lack integrity. It comes from that word integer. It means one, something that's whole and complete. We lack oneness. We lack wholeness. We've got a battle within ourselves, which is that our loves, our desires, to quote the great African, Augustine, they're all out of whack. They're a mess. They're disordered. What's the solution? Well, into Augustine's backyard wandered someone many years later named Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish Christian philosopher. He's sort of the ultimate absent-minded professor kind of type. He's like the dude you see at the gym, fellas, when you go in and he's got the, the low-top sneakers, the socks pulled all the way up, the headband, the tank top, the two short shorts from the 80s. You're like, who is this guy? Well, the answer is Kierkegaard, who back in the 1800s was so brilliant, he literally predicted the smartphone, it's true, Kierkegaard was someone who knew what personal integrity was. And he discovered, like Augustine, the key to finding individual wholeness and personal oneness. He wrote a little book about it. He called it, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. He says the key to living well in the reality we call life, the key to your full individuality today, making the world a better place, it's to first make loving God our one thing. And he wrote about it. He prayed a little prayer in it. And here is what he prayed. He said, Father in heaven, what are we without you? You the one who is one thing and who is all. So may you give to the intellect wisdom to comprehend that one thing. To the heart sincerity to receive this understanding. To the will purity that wills only one thing. In prosperity may you grant perseverance to will one thing. Amid distractions collectedness to will one thing. In suffering patience to will one thing. Alas, he says, but this has not come to pass. Something has come in between. The separation of sin lies in between each day and day after day. Something is being placed in between delay, blockage, interruption, delusion, corruption. So in this time of repentance, may you give the courage once again to will one thing. He finishes like this, Lord, Make our heart your temple in which you live. Grant that every impure thought, every earthly desire might be like 
the idol Dagon, each morning broken at the feet of the Ark of the Covenant. Let me ask you, do you want wholeness, personal oneness? Here's the key. Will one thing. Love one thing first. Love God first. Make Him your one thing. You weren't made. I wasn't made. We weren't made for desires that pull us apart. You can experience freedom as an individual by opening up your heart and allowing it to be not the temple of some false idol like Dagon of misordered loves. No, but the temple of the one true God, the temple of the Holy Spirit who made and loves you individually. You and I, we were made, you were made for a kind of personal unity that brings wholeness, oneness, and peace. But, 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 that's not the only kind of unity James calls us to and says that we were made for. Let's take a look. Number two, had a kind of corporate unity that brings healing. James insists we were made for, and we're going to swing the pendulum to the other side for a moment because James does this too. Here, he presses upon us the truth that God holds not only individuals accountable for their choices and actions, but that God holds groups, collectives, churches, nations even accountable for their actions and choices and desires. And look at this, look at this. It's here in this next verse. It's arguably the most gut-wrenching verse in James, but it's also fascinating if you can see what he's doing. Look at verse four. James says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Notice he doesn't say, you adulterous individual. No, but you adulterous people. Now the word here actually is the word adulteresses, not because the Bible has an issue with females or female sexuality. Actually quite the opposite. Go read Proverbs, Song of Songs to see how the Bible writers celebrate these things. But here, James is drawing on another section of Hebrew scripture. The prophets who compared God's people in the Old Testament to people who were cheating on their spiritual marriage vows. You see, you may know the story. Israel in the past had covenanted with God to be his people exclusively, but they had given themselves into the arms of other idols, other lovers, other desires. And so James says, now to this group of Christians, you're doing the same thing they did as a group together. Somehow you're cheating on God. Now was every single person in the church doing that? Certainly not. But somehow, enough worse, somehow it was enough of a problem and an issue. God addressed all of them together. Now, this is tough, but it also shows us something that's beautiful and maybe even a little shocking. That God doesn't just see us as his subjects, even though he's our king. That God doesn't just see us as his sheep, even though he is our shepherd. But it shows us that God sees us beyond those metaphors. Like a husband sees his wife as someone he is in rapture with, longs to be intimate with. See, James's rebuke actually sits in the shadow of the greatest picture of love ever drawn that God loves us. But that's just the thing. God doesn't just love you. God loves 
and us. See, we are the bride of Christ. We are living stones. We are the body of Christ. There's a kind, a kind of collectivism, a kind of collective oneness, the New Testament writer simply won't let us escape. So James can say, rightly, therefore, you adulterous people. If he'd have have been from Texas, he'd have said, y'all adulterous folk. Now, what's he getting at? He's showing us that sometimes sin doesn't just stay in an individual's heart. Sometimes it grows. It spreads throughout a group like a virus throughout a church. I bet a lot of you have experienced this in some way, somehow, some fashion before. Which on one hand, if you read the New Testament, you're going to know it's kind of inevitable. It's not necessarily the mark of a bad, corrupt church. The only reason, think about it, we have the letters of Peter, Paul, James, John, whoever wrote Hebrews, is because churches had problems. Because churches always have people individuals. There are always new people coming in, always new disciples being made, always new babies being born with sin natures that need to be converted to and discipled to follow Jesus. So the question should never be, is there some kind of problem somewhere in the church? That's a kind of foregone conclusion because again, at a certain level, churches are always full of, or I should say, they ought to be full of broken sinners who know they are in need of redemption grace, transformation. So the question though should be, well, what is that group of Christians doing about it? So James is about to say to this group of Christians collectively, what are you all going to do about your main problem with a capital P? You got some smaller problems here, there, but you together have got a main problem, capital P. He takes all the things this church is going through and he dumps them into a big bucket and he puts this label on it. He goes again, you adulterous people, don't you know? Here's the bucket. Here's the label. That friendship with the world means enmity against God. The basic thing, he says, that keeps the group of Christians from moving forward is that they've got more allegiance to how the world works than allegiance to who God is. See this metaphor, the world James uses, it's a word used, you know this throughout the Bible, to describe values that aren't kingdom of God values. And so James is saying here, here's the implication. Oh, but if you'll come out, if you'll come apart from the way that the world works, you've got the opportunity now together, collectively to do and be something great together. The implication is your church can be known as a friend of God, and you can show that to the world. And so I want to take a moment here to unpack that implication because throughout church history, and specifically in first century church history, there were four main ways that the church of Jesus did just that. Four main ways they responded well, responded rightly to James's rebuke, and they demonstrated their friendship towards God and therefore ultimately brought a kind of corporate healing into the world. Here's my sort of summary statement, my proposition. What I believe is that like them, we now, we can bring healing into the world through how we handle these four main things, power, sex, money, and race. Let's look at them each in turn quickly. First, there was power. Uh, In the first century, you may know the story, Jesus, of course, face down, he was initially crushed by the Roman Empire, arguably the greatest power the world's ever known. 
Flash forward, though, 300 years later, roughly, now the Roman Empire is led by a Christ follower. And yeah, his views were dicey, and Constantine's methods were super questionable. But here's what he did do. He outlawed, he put to an end, the persecution and execution of Christians by the Roman state. See, in essence, Jesus defeated Rome. How? I'll tell you how he didn't do it. It wasn't by grabbing power. It wasn't by building an army. It wasn't by killing others. Nor does he ever instruct his followers to do something along those lines and force people to believe in him. Listen, if we'll handle the subject of power well, lay down our rights for others, we can bring healing into the world. Second though, how we handle sex and family, this topic, sex and family, shows also where our friendship really lies. The, the, the Christian community was one of the earliest groups that decided that abortion was wrong and that, that female infanticide was wrong. It was actually a right, if you didn't know, in the Roman Empire to throw away your baby, especially female babies, because males were prized more than females. And you had the right to drop off your baby in the woods and leave it there to die of exposure and justify it with your faith system. It was called abandoning your child to the fates with a capital F. And the fates would decide what to do with it. But not surprisingly, 100% of the time, the fates decided that your baby, especially your female baby, would die. And around the time of Jesus, there were approximately 40% more males than females in the Roman Empire because the practice was so widespread. But the Christian community said, no more. That is wrong. To be a Christian means you cannot kill your child. And girls are worth as much as boys, or should we say boys, are worth as much as girls and Christians also reserved sex exclusively for marriage. And here's why there was, this was such a big deal. Because there was, just like today, in some ways, a double standard for men and women. A man could have mistresses on the side, but a woman could be only with her husband. And so by saying sex is reserved exclusively for marriage, it dramatically raised the fortunes of women in the church and then in the Roman Empire. It eliminated the double standard and women and widows streamed into the church. Now, in those first two ways, you can see the Christian community looked really conservative by comparison to the surrounding culture. But in these next two ways, they looked far more liberal. Look at how Christian historian Rodney Stark outlines how the church handled the subjects, first of money, then of race. But he says this, quote, to cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope to cities filled with newcomers and strangers. Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment to cities filled with orphans and widows. Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family to cities torn by violent ethnic strife. Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity for what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture. Those churches, through the way they handled money, created healing in the world around them. And finally, Rodney Stark shows us, he hints at the fourth way the church of Jesus can create a whole new kind of culture. It's through how we handle the subject of race. And as a historian, he points out the simple facts that how Christians handle this subject matters in terms of creating a new culture as much as how we handle those other three, money, sex, power. So how should we handle it? Well, many Americans believe all kind of studies show that the majority 
of majority culture, American Christians believe that the best way to handle the topic of race is simply not to talk about it, that to talk about it only makes it worse. Now, they don't believe that about money, about sex, about power. They say we should preach on those things. We should talk about those things, but race, we shouldn't. Now, you know that if you're married, you've ever been married, that not talking about your problems is the fastest way to make something an even bigger problem. We can only make things better if we face them courageously together. Here's the key in love. And that's what the New Testament church did. It took a while. It took a while, but they got it right. And think about, think about how many letters are written about Jew and Gentile conflicts. The New Testament writers were always talking about this topic. And here is what they insisted, that somehow, no matter what, that we humans can be one, are one in Jesus. Our differences, yes, they matter. Our differences matter so much. God gave us those. But what we have in common, the person, the body of Jesus, has to and must matter more. Rodney Stark, among others, shows that when Christians do well to work through, labor through, handle, not just two, not just three, but all four of these things, we can create a whole new culture. We can demonstrate a kind of corporate unity that brings healing to the world around us. And that is what we are after. That's what my heart beats for here at Mosaic. You say, well, Morgan, how can that happen? I mean, this seems all really hard, Morgan. It's either like I'm at a dead end personally in my heart today. It seems like our nation in some ways is at a dead end. How can we move forward? Here's how. We need to see that personal unity and corporate unity are only made possible by number three, by a kind of divine unity that holds the universe together. Where is that? James points us to it right here. Just when you think that none of this is possible, James rescues us. He says, but he gives us more grace. And I want you to know, church, that there is grace for you today while you're working through your stuff or your fear or your anger or your pain. And there is grace for us while we try to work through hard stuff and and get it right. God gives us more grace. And James goes on to say, he said, that is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace. He shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Come near to God. He'll come near to you. So how do we do that? How do we come near to God? How do we get the grace of God in our lives? He shows us in the next verse. Verse 9, he says, Therefore, grieve, mourn, and wail. He's saying the key to personal and corporate unity is this word. It's the word repentance repentance, to say, I'm sorry to God and to others. Now, how do we get the power to do that? The power to say those words, the power to repent to God and to one another. Here's, because, you know, you know this, it's what it takes to bring unity. Where do we get that? Grace and power. Theologians for centuries, they've they've used this, this fancy word to describe, and catch this, to describe what's inside God. You say, well, what's inside God? Well, according to to Christianity, God is one God, but that one God is tri-personal, Father, Son, Spirit. In other words, God is a relationship within himself. It's a mystery. It's beautiful. And there is one word used to describe what's going on inside that tri-personal relationship. What's the word? It's this word, the word 
perichoresis. Perichoresis, it means literally rotation, or more poetically, the word dancing. Dancing. What's going on inside God is a kind of a dance, but not just any kind, because when those theologians, when they looked at verses like, and chapters like John 17, where we see Jesus thanking God the Father for giving him honor and glory and love from before the world began, they realized that they and we are being shown the very nature, the very meaning of the universe, relationships themselves. Why? Well, what was Jesus showing us was inside the fabric of creation. It's this term, self-giving, self-giving. The Father giving glory to the Son, the Son giving glory to the Father, both of them sending the Spirit, all of them humbling themselves, submitting themselves to each other, taking the lower place. See, humility, it works like magic in relationships because in a sense, it is. Humility is the essence of the supernatural. Humility is what makes God dance. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. In self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm not only of all creation, but of all being. For the eternal word also gives himself in sacrifice. When he was crucified, he did that in the wild weather of his outlying provinces, which he had done at home in glory and gladness from before the foundation of the world. And this is not a law which we can escape. What is outside the system of self-giving is simply and solely hell. Self-giving is absolute reality. See, see when, when you humble yourself, when you take the lower place, when you repent, you touch the rhythm of all creation. It's like, it's like you're putting your finger on the pulse of the Trinity. You learn to dance to the very heartbeat of God. When I got married uh, a number of years ago, like many foolish and stupid men, I used to think, you know, she got the good end of the deal. Look at me. Good thing she married me. I can help her with all her stuff. She should be, you know, pretty grateful. But she suffered me, her foolish husband, well enough at the beginning until a couple of years later into our marriage when it became apparent she wasn't doing better, but rather worse for having to live with me. And things hit ahead when she said to me, why is it that when we fight, you're always right and you feel better and I'm always wrong. I feel worse. Well, I'm not always right, I said, showing her, proving to her I wasn't always right about being right, and she was wrong about me always being right. <laughs> she said, you, you win every time. You can outsmart me and out-argue me. It all seems so well put together, but I, I know, Morgan, believe me, there's something not right inside you. Now, at that point, I've got a choice. Maybe you've got a choice, same choice today. I could be a fool like the writer of Proverbs said, not allow her words to plow my heart. Or I could reach out to touch the pulse of the universe, the rhythm of creation, self-giving, humility, repentance. And I could dance along with the Trinity through six of the hardest words a human being ever has to conjure up and to say, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. Do you see 
How humility, repentance for whatever the small thing is you've got to repent for. How that unity, it all goes together. See, perichoresis, universe dancing. It's the kind of divine unity that holds the universe together. Humility then, and therefore, isn't just practically important. Humility is cosmically important. Humility is what the universe isn't just all about. It's what the universe is always about how can we get that with ourselves with our nation with our friends with our family our church here's how it's by looking to the one though who was cut out of the dance by looking to the one who had his heart purified who kept his hands clean psalm 15 but was made to be unclean in our place by looking to the one who submitted himself to god but was rejected seeing the one who came near to god in faith and assurance but at the cross was rejected by looking to the one who grieved our sin who mourned at the tomb of his friend lazarus and who on the cross wailed my God, why have you forsaken me? It's by looking to the ultimate peacemaker who laid down his rights as God, who showed himself as a peacemaker. He went into the ground, into the tomb like a seed, and he died, but was raised to the power of, by the power of God to bring us together. We have, therefore, an individual Savior who is part of a collective Godhead held together by humble relational connections. Jesus literally gave up his life for us. He accepted the blame of sins he didn't commit. Jesus Christ lived James chapter 4 verses 6 verses 7 verses 8 in our place in a way he was repenting before God for the collective sins of the people though he didn't commit them personally. We can never do this on our own to restore us to God each other and to ourselves and so that now as we draw near to God as we make even the smallest effort, the smallest movement toward God, when it's really, really hard, we can know, we can know he is moving toward us with abundant grace, even right now, today. Church, he's for you. He's for me. He's for us. If we'll come near to God, he'll come near to us. And let me close then with this thought. Because the Bible tells me that, and I believe it, let me tell you something. God is for just speaking today, for this church, for Mosaic Church, I believe in us, I believe in you, I believe in our mission, I believe in the God who gave us this ministry of reconciliation. Yes, it's always costly. Yes, it's always painful, but like the ministry of Jesus, it's always ultimately glorious. And even though we're distanced for what I hope, what I believe will just be a short time, I want you to know that I love you, I love us, and like, like the prophet Elisha said to his friend, don't be discouraged. Open your eyes and see. There are many, many more that are for us than are against us. And best of all, as John Wesley said with his dying breath, best of all, God is with us. He is with us. Let me take a moment, friend, and pray for you right where you are. Oh, Father God, I come in Jesus' name, and I'm praying that you now would give us more grace. As a matter of fact, wherever you are, you're watching this on your screen, would you just pray right where you are, God, give me more grace. Pray this, God, give us more grace. God, give our nation more grace. Would you pray, Lord, help us to humble ourselves before you so that you may lift us up. God, that's my prayer for me, for everyone watching today, for our church, for our nation. We humble ourselves now before you. We need your help so that we 
can dance together and with you. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.